Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Adventure Science Podcast. I'm your host, Simon Donato, and we are very excited today to have on the show with us uh, Benjamin Jordan. So, you know, typically what we do with Adventure Science Projects is land base. We're uh, ground pounders, and today's guest uh, is going to turn that up on its head a little bit. We're going to learn about what life's like... Um, in the air when you're spending more time up there than on the ground. But, you know, Benjamin's uh, got a very interesting uh, backstory as well, uh, trained as a, as a photographer and filmmaker, and he came out of a successful past to move into the world of adventure and ply his love of adventure with his skills as a photographer and filmmaker to help share um, his global journey with the world. Uh, he's got a number of award-winning films. He's got a number of Guinness records uh, for paraglider flights um, in and around Canada. He's also flown uh, globally. And uh, in particular, he recently set a record on a 1,200 kilometer uh, flight in the Canadian Rockies, which we're definitely going to be spending time on today. But uh, without any further ado, Benjamin, thanks for joining me today. Wow, thanks for having me. This is awesome. Thanks, Simon. I, I, want, I, want, I want to carry you around with me so you can just introduce me wherever I go. <laughs> that's, that's awesome. 170 <laughs> extra pounds for you. <laughs> no problem. Cool. No problem. Well, hey, um, yeah, really stoked to have you on today. And uh, let's just dive into it. What I typically do is ask people, you know, how did they get into the world of adventure and exploration? And, you know, you're certainly in it. Um, doesn't sound like you've always been there. But uh, yeah, what's what's your backstory? And what, what got you to where you are today? Right? Well, you know, I got into paragliding. Um, it was uh, it was kind of a freak thing. I was sitting on my friend's couch after being evicted from uh, an apartment that I'd lived in for quite some time, and I was feeling pretty depressed. And um, I was, you know, working on myself then, and and uh, I saw the paraglider, and I heard my brain little voice say, "You can't do that." And um, the funny thing about the voice was that it was so common that, that I barely even heard it. But I decided for the first time in my life to challenge that and to, to try to figure out what would happen if I did one of the things that that little voice was telling me that I just couldn't do. And so um, long story short, I did it and I fell in love with it. And I, I learned that the things that I feared the most were also the things that I loved the most. All I had to do was apply knowledge to my fear and on the other side of that would be love. So that's how I got into paragliding. That's how I got into adventure. And, um, and then, uh, sometime after that, I kind of fell away from paragliding and I, uh, without getting too deeply into it, I actually fell into alcoholism, uh, as a way of coping. And, um, I ended up using paragliding in a very big way to, to get through that as well and to pull me away from the bottle and to give me something else to really focus on. Um, and so ever since then, that was basically 10 years ago. Um, I have, you know, treated paragliding as my savior and adventure as well, um, as a path to health and a path to love. So that brings me kind of to, to where I am. Um, but that's, that's my backstory. Interesting. So uh, where were you when you first uh, got into paragliding then? Were you already out in BC or were you somewhere else? No, I, I'd been uh, living my entire life in Toronto, in the city of Toronto. Uh, I was a fashion and advertising photographer. This had been my dream. And um, it, it was pretty good um, up until I guess I was about 25. Now I've been working for about six years and it was just kind of 
you know, par for the course, uh, I felt, and it uh, wasn't really doing it for me anymore. So when I saw that paraglider, I was sitting on my friend's couch um, in Toronto, and um, I just went to, to, the go- to the good old Google, and I looked up paragliding schools, and the first course I could find was starting in a week in New Zealand. So in a week, I was I was down there on the west coast of um, the North Island. Wow. And, and ran off my first sand dunes is, is how we started. So, yeah, that's how, that's how it started. Very cool. So couldn't find anything uh, at Milton, eh, at the escarpment there. Had to go all the way to New Zealand. Not a bad uh, excuse to visit New Zealand, I suppose. There, Back in 2004, there wasn't a single paraglider uh, in the city of Toronto. I think we had at least three and a half million people then. But I scoured the Internet for information, and I couldn't find anyone in the area. I think that that's changed now. Certainly the sport has grown, but back then, no. All right. Well, Hey, why don't we break down what paragliding is? I mean, there's a number of different, uh, ways to fly. Paragliding is, is one of them. Um, and there's, you know, different ways to paraglide as well. So, uh, you want to explain that for myself and uh, some of our other listeners? Yeah, for sure. Paragliding is a relatively new unpowered form of aviation. Um, you're flying what is essentially a more aerodynamic uh, parachute. Uh, you trade stability for um, glide and aerodynamics. So you've got a lot less stability than under a parachute. Without stability, what that means is that if you fly into a, a region of turbulence, there's a possibility that your your wing is going to collapse and then you no longer have a wing for you know a second or a few seconds. And... Um, that's really the, the risky element of paragliding. Um, but what you get is this performance. And so by performance, um, I mean flying at about 35 to 40 kilometers an hour, um, constant airspeed, and um, a glide ratio of about eight to one, let's say. So what you want to do, or what I do, is I climb a mountain, or halfway up a mountain, let's say, uh, to an area where I can spread out this giant piece of nylon with about 100 strings that attach to two points, uh, my left and right points on my harness. Mm-hmm. And I uh, get my body running up to um, a total of you know 35 kilometers an hour airspeed. So if I've got about 10 kilometers an hour of wind coming up the hill, then I can move at 25 and I'm flying. And then I fly off um, at a grade that that is less than the grade of the hill. So now I'm flying out into the space and I'm looking for what's called a thermal. And a thermal is a, um, a source of hot air that is being released from the earth. The earth is getting heated by the sun throughout the course of the day. And then it has to balance itself out. So it releases heat in the form of these thermals, which are, you know, for sake of simplicity, these invisible columns of rising air that go from the ground all the way up to the cloud. So I'm a specialist in finding where these are going to be. You can't see them, but you can predict where they're going to be. And I'll find them. And then uh, based on you know the, the humidity of the day, based on the, um, the lapse rate of the day, which is the degree at which uh, temperature cools with elevation, and then the wind, um, there's a way to ride that thermal. And you can ride it all the way up to the clouds. Once you get to the clouds, you're no longer halfway up the mountain. You're a hmm. thousand meters, two thousand meters above where you started. Right. And then from there, you can go on a glide. So if you've got a thousand meters to burn before you have to find another thermal, you can glide seven kilometers. Right. With the eight, eight to one kilometers. ratio. So. Gotcha. Yeah, 
And so that's essentially what I'm doing. And I'm flying from mountain to mountain to mountain. Um, I've flown personally, I've flown distances up to uh, 230 kilometers in a single flight that lasted about eight and a half hours. That was in the Himalayas. Um, more recently in the Rockies, which are a little bit more challenging to fly, which we'll get into why. Um, I was flying distances of up to 140 kilometers, but some days you only fly two kilometers, you know, and um, you're really at the whim of Mother Nature and, you know, what she has to offer you on that particular day. So it's a really interesting dance to do with nature, and it's really con connected me to, to her in a way that I, I never knew growing up in the city, growing up in the city. So you grew up in the city. Were you adventurous as a kid, um, you know, go to summer camp, uh, have big dreams or, you know, you always have been interested in photography and made that your first kind of uh, life dream and goal. No, I think I was definitely adventurous. Um, I, it, it took me a while to, to really get outdoors, but I think I was pretty much kind of born a bit of a troublemaker and the, you know, the summer camps that I eventually went to in my, um, my teens, uh, really gave me an outlet uh, to, you know, get get out there, get paddling, you know, uh, just be out there hiking, you know, archery, all of these things. I felt super alive in those moments. And uh, photography has always been a way for me to connect, um, you know, those moments with the stories that I like to tell after. So um, definitely adventure had come first. But then, you know, as as you know, living in a city, it can be quite expensive. And so, um, you know, the more I got into my career as a photographer, uh, the more I just kind of got swept away in that. And I kind of let adventure and nature really go by the wayside, which was, I think, I guess, the leading cause of my, my, my source of depression back then and my drinking. Yeah, I mean, there's just there's something that comes with it being outside for for anybody. I mean, it's it's where we're supposed to be. I feel so. Um, that's interesting that you say that about yourself, though, and how you know you tied it back to the time in your life when you weren't feeling your best. All right, well, let's let's jump into some of the uh, the big stuff that you've done. Um, history is uh, only so interesting when you're when you're doing so many cool things in the present. So um, let's talk about uh, Jasper and your endless chain project. Sure. Well, um, yeah, let's, uh, let me first say, um, that, you know, Jasper national park is, you know, a lot, I think a lot of people that I've spoken to haven't been there yet, but, um, I just discovered it myself a few years ago. And what I also discovered was that it is the only park in North America to allow paragliders to launch or land within its boundaries. Really? And that's awesome. And that only that only started about five five years ago. And despite this, many pilots haven't gone there. And I think that partially because it's a little bit out of the way, it's a little bit north uh, of where most people live, but also because it's just kind of scary. Like when you get up there, you're getting into some really big, really, 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 really big mountains. And um, I thought, you know what? I've been traveling all around the world for the last decade, flying here, flying there, and it's time for me to really, um, you know, what's what's the word? Um, I shouldn't use words on a on a intellectual podcast that I don't know, but uh, pay homage to, um, to 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 my country and to 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 the greatness of these mountains here, and try to become the first person to fly all the way across Jasper National Park, and. Um, as I was trying to do this, I ended up communicating with a guy who uh, hang glided 
here in Canada since back in the 70s. He's like one of the original hang glide pilots in Canada. And he had always dreamt of flying along this ridge called the Endless Chain Ridge in the middle of the park. It's this beautiful, beautiful ridge. It connects many, many peaks, but in a very, without 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 the ridge dropping in between the peaks so it has this kind of razor sharp edge um and it goes for 25 kilometers and they call it the endless chain and it was his dream back in the 70s to fly this thing but back then you couldn't fly in jasper so uh unfortunately in 2011 he suffered a life-changing accident and he would he would never be able to to walk again let alone fly oh man and i was talking to him because i wanted his that was, yeah, he had a flying accident, uh, unfortunately, and it wasn't under a hang glider, it was under a paraglider. Um, and um, he uh, he's remained in the community, and his knowledge of weather um, and how, how the wind and all that works in these regions is, is uh, you know, it's, 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 it's far beyond anything that I, that I have. So I teamed up with him, um, and I asked him to follow me on my satellite tracker. I used an in-reach device because I'm out of cell phone reception. And he could monitor me, but also send me weather updates and his analysis of what was happening. Um, but at the same time, the most exciting part was that he and I were going to uh, live out this together. We were going to fly across Jasper National Park together, so to speak, and fly across the Endless Chain Ridge, which was his dream, um, together. Him from his home in Calgary and uh and then me in the air and, and on on these mountaintops uh you know making a go of this so that's what we did last summer and uh, i'm so excited to talk about it i mean i don't even know where to start it was a 52-day uh expedition okay uh, i flew a total of 1200 well, i journeyed a total of 1200 kilometers i flew a total of a thousand um it's a new north american record for for what that's worth but that's not the most important thing um and um what i wanted to do is i wanted to see if it would be possible to make it from montana all the way to prince george capital of northern british columbia uh solo and unsupported of course with you know with the exception of the the weather updates and the sense of security that i got from my friend Stuart. so that's that's what it was <laughs> but uh okay so you, do you want to talk about the logistics or yeah yeah i'd love to know more about the logistics i mean to plan a month and a half uh, expedition you know it's uh, it's a big chunk of time uh so in terms of the equipment i mean i also was reading on your website that um these wings only last for 400 hours and then you need to uh swap them out so you know how do you plan for that i imagine you had a couple wings that were just spares anyways um but like I don't really know much about the uh, paragliding equipment. So you're in a harness. You said there's a number of strings that will attach to your harness points and go back to the wings. What's the material? Uh, you know how how much of a beating can these things take? What are what are some of the issues that you face when you're in the air other than um, you know turbulence? What what uh, makes this um, you know such a such a challenging endeavor other than the time and uh, you know obviously the flight skill required. Okay, well, that's definitely a lot of questions uh, there, um, and I'll try. I'll do my best to to keep them all in mind. Um, so the the paragliders themselves, they're made from um, a material that we just call ripstop nylon, and so I'm sure it's a certain grade. I'm not sure what that is, but you basically get a a two surface, approximately twenty square meter uh, airfoil um, that weighs about four to five kilograms. Um, so for whatever 
where that's worth. They can tear uh, very easily if you happen to launch or land in, in a very uh, rocky situation where there's some rocks or if you happen to land in a tree. I've done that a couple times and you put a, a lot of strain on one area um, and they can also be repaired. Um, you can repair them with uh, duct tape or ripstop nylon tape. Um, I've broken strings before. The strings can be replaced and literally just have loops sewn with, you know, a simple needle and thread so they're pretty easy to maintain as long as yeah. you don't do a ton of damage you and as you mentioned they only last uh, yeah you can I, I i have i have you know a very small ziploc bag full of stuff to, to fix it um if i have a problem i don't carry any spares um 400 hours uh for most pilots will last you know at least four years if someone's flying 100 hours a year which is actually a fair bit for most pilots uh, i fly probably about 200 to 250 hours a year um, so a wing will last me about two years. Um, you know, so I, I only I only use this wing probably to about a quarter of its life, if that, during this expedition. I think I flew a total of about 60 hours over the course of 52 days. Um, and that kind of leads into to talking about the waiting element, because it's not just like hopping in a car and if the car runs, you go. Um, you know, paragliding involves a lot of what's called para-waiting, and, and that is sitting and humming and hawing about the weather conditions and asking yourself if the margins are okay to continue, if you think that you're going to be able to to move forward. So, um, you know, one of the one of the great challenges inside of paragliding that a lot of people don't consider because you can't really see it when you're looking at a picture or even a, a video is the the fact that you're moving so darn slow. You know, 40 kilometers an hour is not very fast when you're dealing with at times headwinds of up to 30 kilometers an hour. And I'm st and I'm still flying on those days. I'm not flying on the days when it's 40. Okay or 50, because if it's 30, I'm moving at 10, you know, and like 10 with respect to the ground, that's a jog. Mm -hmm. And um, on top of that, if you're trying to, if you're trying to clear, you know, six, seven kilometers between mountains, and you're dealing with that kind of, of a headwind, your glide is now reduced from, let's say, eight to one to two to one. So you're not even going to make it. So, um, you know, the, the real challenge of paragliding really is the speed of the aircraft. You know, hang gliders can fly up to 100 kilometers an hour airplanes that we travel in my goodness i i don't even know what those numbers are but boy oh boy are they moving fast paragliders you're kind of like the turtle of the sky and you know if there's a strong breeze uh especially if there's a strong breeze in your face you're not going anywhere you're just waiting you're literally waiting and so the greatest challenge for me um although i suppose it may not be so scientific it's it's more psychological is the one of not going crazy while sitting on a map on top for you know up to one week at a time uh, of really? being completely you know in solitude and and really not knowing if it's a good idea for me to continue or not so i deal with a lot of that and that's really the thing that makes these expeditions hard and that's really the reason that i'm the only person in this country and let alone on this continent doing uh doing this right now doing expedition length uh paragliding trips that's right I had right, no idea so they call that. it Vol Bivouac, which is a friend. Oh, pardon me. Sorry. Well, I was just going to say, I had it's, no idea uh, that yeah, there's flying... such a difference between uh, hang gliding speed and paragliding speed. I mean, it makes sense, but uh, not knowing much about either one, uh, surprising the speed difference. Yeah, well, um, good point. Um, I'm not an expert on hang gliding, but I can paint the picture, I think, quite easily. Um, you know, when you're hanging from a – okay, 
when you're in a hang glider, you're kind of like the fuselage of an airplane. You know, you're right up there with your wing and you can manipulate it in that way. And so when you want to speed up, all you have to do is basically point the glider down with respect to your body. So mm -hmm. you pull the bar in that's connected to it and it points down and you end up increasing your speed by a tremendous degree. You can go from 40 kilometers an hour to probably 120, 150 kilometers an hour if you really want. Now with a paraglider, um, you you lose all of that performance uh, and you lose it because you no longer have this rigid wing that you need a car to get up the mountain and it's heavy and this and that. You have this, you know, foldable, perfect, you know, thing that can fit into a lunchbox, mm -hmm. but you're now, um, you're in order for that thing to be stable because it's not a rigid glider, you have to be hanging from all these lines and these lines go down several meters. So it's effectively like the amount of performance that a baby might have while sitting in one of those like you know bouncy chairs right um the amount of uh, manipulation that you can have with your glider is extremely minimal you can deflect the trailing edge left and right that's how you slow down or that's how you turn and you can pull the leading edge down but only ever so slightly we're talking like you know inches compared to feet um in a sense by using a bar that is connected to your feet and then you push that out and is essentially the you know the opposite of what a brake is and it pulls the leading edge down but only ever so slightly so you get a speed increase of 10 kilometers an hour so now you're moving from 40 to 50 kilometers an hour and it's significantly less stable when you do that so again more risk of collapse in turbulent air whereas with a pair with a hang glider you pull that thing in and you've increased your speed by 50 kilometers an hour and you're no less stable in fact you're more stable than wow. you were before so you know at the same time a hang glider can only fly so slow and so you know, good luck trying to land it on top of a mountain, you know, in the middle of, uh, you know, the continental divide, you know, to set up your camp for the night. It's not going to happen. And so that's what paragliding allows me to do that uh, I wouldn't otherwise be able to do on a higher performing aircraft. Interesting. So that precision element is uh, critical when you're um, doing these expeditions, especially when landing sites are um, kind of challenging to, to find or to stick to. Absolutely. Um, if you, sometimes I have to land on a very narrow snowbank, maybe that you know some last little bit of snow that's there in the summer, just so I don't end up twisting an ankle or breaking a leg on some rocks. Right. And so I'm coming in, you know, but it's 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 really only thanks to my slow speed that I can do that in a safe safe manner. Okay. Well, mm. let, so let's go back to some of the um, the day to day that you deal with while you were on your. Uh, a recent uh, north-south trip. So, you well, where where did you start, for example? And and how, I mean, mountaintop down in Montana was that where you started, or up in Jasper? I uh, so I started uh, in the south. I started um, in Montana. Okay. I I, f I physically walked across the border um, with my paraglider. I just wanted to have a very hard line set and a record of my immigrating into Canada mm -hmm. um, or emigrating whatever from the united states back into canada i'm canadian and uh and then i hiked up the very first um creek that i could find it's called phillips creek about one kilometer north of the u.s border mm -hmm. and from there i connected to a logging slash uh, that i hiked up and then i launched from the top of so i launched from that logging slash and on that particular day i was able to fly um as the crow flies approximately 85 kilometers so i was directly east of cranbrook if you know where that is, west oh, yeah. of Fernie. And I landed up on a mountain there. And I was just beside myself. Uh, it was the first day of the expedition. It had gone like 
better than textbook. Um, and there I was on a mountaintop ready to fly the next day. Um, I'm going around, I'm, I'm harvesting snow um, in a, a, a big black bladder that I have that uh, uses, you know, it, it manages the solar heat to melt the snow quite nicely uh, for my water. Uh, I'm carrying 12 days of food, which is entirely comprised of peanut butter, instant noodles, and coffee. Uh, I get 2,000 calories a day that way, and that's not as much as I'm using, but it's adequate. You're and, only on 2,000 um, calories yeah. a day? Yeah, that's it. Wow. And some days I was actually on less later on when I started to get into dire situations where I was stuck on the mountain and I couldn't hike down. And I couldn't see because of the smoke, um, as you know, got quite heavy. So there was instances where I would land on the mountain and didn't really know where I was. And I couldn't see the valley floor. I couldn't even see a few hundred meters in front of me. And I was, you know, getting really, really low on peanut butter, um, which, you know, doesn't sound that appetizing. But when you're really hungry, it's it's a godsend. And uh, I, I actually ended up in a situation where I had to... Um, you know, break 20 years of vegetarianism and uh, learn to hunt for food uh, in order to to be able to get by. So I suppose I should add squirrels or marmots. Or I'm not sure what they were exactly um, to my <laughs> to my to my my logistics or my my uh, what would I call it my cuisine. But yeah, mostly it's just peanut butter and noodles. Jeez. So what what were you carrying and did you have any resupplies? So you, you walk across the border, climb up uh, this mountain near Cranbrook and push off and you've got a backpack full of, uh, you know, camp fuel, uh, your supplies that will last you 15 days, uh, 30 days. Yeah, 12, 12 days. I've got, um, you know, I've got a lightweight tent. Uh, I've got a lightweight sleeping bag. Um, a small fuel canister and stove, although I mostly used fires, uh, small fires uh, okay. instead so that my fuel would last um, and uh, only use fuel when I really needed to. Um, I'm carrying 12 days of food with the, the peanut butter and the noodles and coffee. Um, I forgot about coffee and uh, camera equipment um, because I'm making a film and I'm doing a photo documentary to, to share. And so um, yeah, I flew the first day, for instance, to Cranbrook. Uh, the next day I flew to Fairmont. Uh, and then I had to wait out a day of storms. The next day I flew to Invermere. And then I had to wait out another four days, five days of stability, which is where uh, there is no lapse rate. It's the same temperature down low as it is up high. That's when you get no clouds and you have no thermals. So I had to wait for that to pass. And then the next flight, I was able to make it all the way up to Golden. So once I got to Golden, I've been out for about 10 days and I was down to about two days worth of food and that's where I went to the grocery store again and um, I got another 12 days worth of peanut butter and noodles and then I also like to uh, lavish in you know the luxury of being able to eat cheese and things like that so I make these really big sandwiches that I just kind of fit in my belly and then I hike back up the mountain and wait Gotcha. Wait to go again. So pulling yeah. into Golden, would you uh, did you land in the valley or did you land up on the on a mountain? Uh, well, uh, Mount Seven's there, right? Don't they have a uh, pad up there? Yeah, that's right. So Mount Seven is a place that I'm familiar with flying. Um, it's really the only place in the Rockies that I'm familiar familiar with flying. So it was really comfortable for me to finally get there. And uh, yeah, I landed uh, quite close to the grocery store. Uh, it was about to close, so I had to run as fast as I could. 
I remember spiraling down out of the sky, like looking it up on Google and seeing like, ah, oh, closest in 30 minutes, <laughs> you know, and just trying to figure out like where I could land as close as possible to the store. So I landed about 500 meters away from the store, uh, ran into the store. Of course, it's always funny going in because I haven't bathed and, you know, in so long and pe- people kind of look at me in a suspicious way. And I try to explain like I'm on an expedition, you know, don't don't close. I need to get some stuff. And so um, I got all the stuff I needed. And then I hiked back up Mount Seven and sat there for a total of basically seven days before I was able to fly over the Continental Divide really? into Alberta. Yeah. Uh, which involved the day of actually flying really close to the divide, so about 20k north of Jasper, and looking at the conditions. And at that point, you know, the the thing to talk about is that most people fly, uh, pretty much everyone flies, you know, up and down the Columbia Valley, up and down the Rocky Mountain Trench, because right. if you don't find a thermal, this invisible column of air, you're going to end up having to land. And that's okay when you have a farm field below you and you know you're within walk of the highway and you can you know get back but if you're flying from golden to saskatchewan river crossing as your next point of civilization you've got a stretch of 60 kilometers where you know if you land um you're going to be likely in a very bad way because um you know there's, you'll be lucky if there's as much as a trail, but certainly there's no farm farm field or no landing pad for you to land in. So in those kinds of situations, your best option would be to just fly straight into a tree uh, as opposed to landing in like a rushing river or something like that. And so I got to that point 20 kilometers north of Golden looking at that crossing of the divide and I realized, you know what, like I just have this all. All the numbers are there. I'm high enough. The wind is right. The time of day is right. But I just had this horrible feeling in my stomach that it was not the day. And so I ended up having to turn around and fly back to Golden and sit on that mountain for another four days uh, waiting for a day that I felt was suitable to make to make that kind of a transition. Keep in mind that, you know, that kind of a, a flight is, you know, usually people aren't doing that at all. But if it is done, it's not done more than about once a year, you know, flying over the divide for, for the reasons that I mentioned. It's just the stakes are really high and and uh, it's what it's what makes this so exciting, really. Right. Well, I mean, I'm sure you're familiar with the uh, recent climbing films, Free Solo and Dawn Wall, which are, you know, making their rounds now. And it's it is all about stakes. Right. And then unless unless you're in it, unless you're pushing at the front it's very hard for people to understand why someone would put themselves in such danger. Um, you know, free solo, obviously climbing without rope, uh, for you, you know, to push, um, into an area where, you know, there's not a lot of good landings and that there's only one good outcome and that's you cross it. If you crash land, life's going to get pretty tough. Now, did you have an inreach unit, uh, with you or, or something like that? I did, yeah. I did have that. Um, you said your friend was my... following you on that, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, my my friend Stuart. He was uh, he was watching me pretty much for every flight and keeping an eye on me. So that was really good. Um, we had a, a protocol. Whenever I would launch, I would send a message that I was launching. Whenever I would land, I sent a message that I landed safe. Uh, so that you know, if he was watching and my tracker wasn't moving for whatever reason or just stopped tracking altogether, um, and I hadn't posted that I landed safe, that that there would be someone that would have an idea that that I was uh, I was in trouble. 
Right. I mean, that's so critical now. It's, uh, it's something we've been dealing with for a long time. We've used in reach, God, probably close to nine, 10 years now. And it's just the technology's there. Why, why take the risk? You know, what we do is dangerous enough. So if you've got uh, a safety valve that you can use, and, and we've had to use them in the past, um, certainly don't feel any shame in, in using it, but um, you obviously never want to if you can avoid it. But when things go wrong, it's good to have. You know, I also found it interesting to hear, like, when I think of, you know, these big uh, expedition firsts and these these challenging uh, things that we do, mm-hmm. I kind of always go to the, oh, yeah, well, you know, it's physically demanding or it's psychologically challenging. You know, he's battling wind and weather and birds and bugs and whatever else there is up there. Um, Yeah. But, you know, it's these little things like you're trying to land and you've got to get to a grocery store so that you don't have to wait overnight in town and catch the store uh, when it opens in the morning because you missed it that day. I mean, those little things really affect expeditions and they they play hugely on the psyche um when we race you know getting into an aid station after you've just had a miserable stretch it's like as soon as you get some food in your belly or or a drink of something that you want your mood completely changes and it's like a fresh start or hit the restart button so you know i I know there's a lot of wild challenges out there physical and mental but it's, it's it's those little wins like making a grocery store minutes before it closes that you know, saves the day so often. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. You you got it. Like, yeah, it's just, it it is the little things like, you know, a slice of cheese or like an iced tea or something like that, that, uh, you know, are really the moments that I remember the most, Uh, (laughs) although they're not that interesting to other people, you know, they're like, is there most memorable experience? I'm like, yeah, when I got to eat cucumbers and cheese outside the grocery store in Golden, that was awesome. Yeah, you kind of need to live it. That's for sure. Okay, so let's let's get back to uh, the northward push here. So you've you've made the continental divide now. It turned out to be a good day after sitting uh, outside of Golden for the better part of a week. Yeah, and um, I landed. Uh, I, I couldn't land inside of Banff National Park, which is where I entered uh, along the Icefields Parkway there, south of Saskatchewan River Crossing, um, because it is illegal. And um, and also there's really nowhere to land. There's just that highway, and it's a very busy highway if you're familiar with it. So, oh yeah, um, yeah. I had to fly north to Saskatchewan River Crossing, which was kind of hairy because I was flying right at the eye of a big storm that was brewing just north of there. Um, you know, lightning and everything. And um, then from that point, I was on that stretch of highway that runs out east towards like Hundred Mile House. And I, uh, I flew out that valley to get out of the park. So I flew about 10 kilometers out of the park and I landed on the, um, on the edge of the North Saskatchewan river. Mm-hmm. And, uh, from there I slept and then I hiked up, I believe it was called Mount Hainsley or, um, anyway, it's, it's a, it's a mountain, uh, 20 kilometers east of Saskatchewan river crossing. And, um, that's where things got really sketchy for me because, um, while doing a snow run, I camped on one spot and then I, I dropped my kit and then I kept going up the mountain, uh, up a kind of precarious spine that I wasn't sure if I was comfortable doing that with my 25 kilometer pack. Um, uh, it was about a kilometer long and it was quite, you know, there's quite a bit of rock movement. And while I was coming back from getting 
the ice in my in my bladder. I took my inReach, you know, for reasons of safety. But when I came back, I slipped and uh, somehow uh, my inReach fell off of me and it broke. The antenna broke off. Oh man, so it was hard to do. Yeah. Yeah, I just kind of fell out from a few meters, but it, it broke off and um, I, I couldn't put it back on or, or any of that. So um, all of a sudden I went from feeling like I was a little bit at risk, you know, like I could get hurt to like I could get hurt and I could die because Stuart, you know, is not going to be able to be present to my whereabouts. I can't call search and rescue anymore. And um I was in a situation where, you know, the closest point of food was Saskatchewan River Crossing, which would have been by road about, about I don't know, 40 kilometers. And um, I had to, you know, make a big choice because my next flight, my next flight north of there was going to be flying over the Columbia ice fields and, and into Jasper National Park, hopefully all the way to Jasper. And that was definitely the most serious flight of the entire journey. But I realized I'd be doing that without any sort of a safety net. And um, not only that, but I would have no sort of forecasting of what the weather was going to be either. So I ended up waiting up there and really hemming and hawing over the whole situation um, for a couple days. And then I finally just got this really positive feeling that, you know, I, I could do it. I also realized that I was really low on food. So I had to I had to get off the mountain, even if I just sort of to down to the highway and then walked to Saskatchewan River Crossing and got some food. And, um, and that was probably the most sensational flight of the entire journey. Um, it involved flying, uh, about 50 kilometers north of through Banff and then another 40 kilometers through Jasper. And now I'm in Jasper. So, uh, I'm able to land if I have to legally. And I got to fly over the endless chain on that flight, which is the first time anyone's ever done that. Um, so it was quite spectacular. And at the same time, the north wind was so strong that, you know, despite that it was, you know, a good day and a long day, I was only moving at an average of about 20 kilometers an hour, maybe 15 kilometers an hour because of the the strong headwind. So every transition was a fight. And when I got past the endless chain, uh, I not only was I beat, but the head in, the north wind had increased so much that there was no way that I could have continued. So I ended up having to land up on a mountain just north of the endless chain and sleeping there and just praying that I'd be able to fly on the next day because I was now down to one day of food. Really? And uh, I had I had another 40 to 50 kilometers to go to get to Jasper Town mm -hmm. um, or fly down to the highway and then walk. But that walk would have taken me at least two days and my rule is that i can't accept outside support unless i'm going to die of course but i would have i would have not eaten for two days of hiking um in order to uh stay inside of integrity with the you know the the logistics that i i wanted to you know abide by as far as a standard that i'm setting for this sport that's it's very interesting that you uh you approach it that way and that you've got your own ethos um behind it i want to want to talk about that but i i do want to ask a question about advanced prep for this so you know you're going to fly something that has okay. been done for most of it at least people have flown in and around these areas and i'm sure you can get some kind of beta and information about it how much of it had you flown before and how much of it was just fresh and new of very little and i and i actually I, I should take a moment to emphasize that um other than the stretch between the border and golden very little of this has ever been flown um and so being able to 
like you might hear a rumor that one person kind of you know was able to fly over the divide in that area or what have you um but uh it's very un unchartered uh by you know as far as paragliding and hang gliding is concerned so i wasn't able to get a lot of information in that way um but i will say that i did do a little bit of research um on my own the fall the previous year because I tried to do it the previous year and I failed. Okay. And uh, yeah, um, I started, I went, I tried to go from the north end to the south end and it started great. Um, I flew 140 kilometers from Bride all the way south to Mount Robson. And then, so I was about 70K. And then I flew another 70K east over the divide all the way to Jasper Park. Um, so I thought, wow, I've got this in the bag. I'm going to be down in Montana within a week. And that was basically as far as I got. I had a few more flights, but um, the wind became in increasingly strong. And as you remember, it was also a bad fire year. Mm -hmm. So we had a, a tremendous amount of smoke roll in in August, which is right when I was starting it, in the start of August. And that triggered all sorts of weird hail and all sorts of weird things that was happening, that were happening out there. And so I'd flown that section uh, from McBride over to Jasper, which was the first time anyone had ever done that that line but now i had that information so that i felt confident going the other way as far as what i was looking at and um i had also flown from golden north uh to a little bit beyond that area where i ended up having to make that choice to cross over the divide or not so i'd done that that line as well other than that um it was entirely google earth um and uh and topographical maps which i keep on my phone and just studying those and getting a sense of you know what those distances are so the night before i go on i, I do a flight um i will have my phone and i will go through the topographical map and i will look at every single ridge and every single mountain and calculate the distances and say okay that's a five kilometer transition okay that's a seven kilometer transition okay that's a three kilometer transition but i'm transitioning to a high ridge and i need to be able to get over that ridge in order to find the thermic uh, you know, air on the other side. So I'm doing that usually um, the day before, because like on any adventure, things are usually going as unplanned, as unplanned as possible. So um, there's not a whole lot of sense of doing too much planning ahead of time, because, you know, two years ago, when I flew from Vancouver to Calgary, uh, by the same method, you know, I had intended to follow the crow's nest most of the way. And you know, within the first week, I realized that that wasn't going to work. And I ended up having to fly up to, uh, towards Whistler and Pemberton really? and then make that, and then make that crossing up there going to Cash Creek, Kamloops, you know, that through those areas and, um, all that planning that I did to take that South line East across British Columbia and into Alberta, that was all for naught because it didn't, uh, it didn't matter. So, um, I tend not to get too carried away with um, route planning and and any of that uh, before a trip like this, and just take it sort of day by day. So, with with the previous year, though, I mean, what what were your takeaways from um, the abbreviated uh, north to south trip? So, you you basically got uh, got stopped by bad weather and smoke. Yeah, well. I guess my 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 takeaway was that it sucks to have to sit up on a mountain for three weeks. <laughs> so that's how long you spent up there. I, I yeah, with with the exception of hiking down to Jasper two times to restock my food because at that point I could only I only had it figured out to 
to be able to carry a week's worth of food. Mm-hmm. So I had to keep hiking down to Jaffer to get food. Um, but yeah, I, I think that that year, I mean, that was actually when I first started working with Stuart and that he told me about his dream to fly the endless chain. And, and, um, my big takeaway was that I was obsessed and that I knew that I had to do this. This was like my number one priority. Um, and that it wasn't going to be easy and that it was going to take, uh, some serious wait times potentially. And, uh, I'm glad I went in there with that mentality because, you know, it certainly did not every three weeks, but definitely waiting in, uh, four different regions for up to a week, uh, to wow. be able to move forward. And, uh, that that's an interesting way of playing on your psyche. So, um, that's where the ukulele comes in. Music <laughs> is a, a savior of all things, uh, but certainly one's own mind, uh, especially if they have to pass that much time alone in the Alpine like that. So you come back from these expeditions a better uh, player than when you left? Oh my goodness, yeah, it's had tremendous a tremendous impact on my 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 you know my music ability and uh, and and my love my love for music. It's it it has saved me, yeah. Very cool. Okay, well, hey, uh, I want to get back to the ethos of it. So, mm-hmm. why why set the bar so high? What's driving you to to make those uh, decisions? Not accept outside help once you hit the valley floor, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. It sounds like a very hands off yeah, project. Yeah, good, good, good question. Um, the, that is something that I, I love to talk about because you know I. I've been inspired um, by other, you know, uh, people who have, you know, done similar things, let's just say. Um, but for, you know, one reason or another, um, they are in a position to be able to work with uh, large sponsors. Uh, for instance, Red Bull has been a major player in this um, sort of subculture uh, of this fringe sport of all bivouac paragliding mm-hmm. and um, people are doing these kinds of expeditions but they're doing it with helicopters um, you know food caches um, all sorts of things that um, are operating behind the scenes uh, but that, prov- that can provide a tremendous amount of logistical support to a pilot um, at the end of the day though these things cost you know they cost someone a whole bunch of money and that's fine if they if they put that together. But at the same time, I want to push the bar uh, in such a way that um, if if there's a kid who's inspired that's coming up after me and and says, you know, I'm, I'm inspired by what he did, I want to 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 do better than that. That's awesome. But I don't want to be participating in this in a way that is inaccessible to other people. Um, and that's really why I am, you know, really big on transparency, sharing all of my track logs on the internet immediately after a flight so that people can see that I am doing what I'm saying I'm doing. And at the same time that they recognize that, uh, you know, the, the, the ethos that I, uh, that I go with is that I will not step in a vehicle, even if that vehicle doesn't have an engine in it, because you've got situations where people are taking rides, you know, up mountains, for instance, Mm-hmm. And saying, well, yeah, but I didn't use it to. I didn't use it to make forward progress. Well, okay, that's great, but you did use it to save a ton of time and calories, mm-hmm. um, you know, and, and and so on and so forth. And so for me, it's important to just have it as a very what you see is what you get kind of approach. And you see me alone. You see me, you know, doing these flights, and there's nothing behind the scenes that you that that you know you either can or can't create for yourself, as long as you have. Um, 
you know, some boots and a paraglider and some time on your hands, you can come along and you can do the exact same thing and you can be inspired by what I'm doing and you can have that feeling for yourself too. This is not inaccessible. And that's really the main reason is just to, to be creating a standard that is accessible by all people, regardless of their levels of sponsorship, regardless of their personal wealth. And, um, and yeah, that's, that's really it. Well, so you do bring up, uh, you know, the expense to, uh, to undertake an expedition like this. So what are, what are the big purchases? I mean, how much does a paraglider cost the average person if we were to walk into a store and pick one up today? Yeah. Um, I guess, I guess a, a paragliding setup could range anywhere from probably maybe brand new, maybe three to $6,000. Okay. Um, when people are interested in getting into flying, which maybe some of your listeners are, um, I always encourage people to buy used because, you know, the same as you don't learn to drive on a sports car, um, you know, you, you learn to drive on a beater and then you choose what, what kind of a car you want to drive once you know how to drive. Um, the, 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 the same thing applies to paragliding. Um, so, you know, used equipment, people can get set up for as little as $1,000 with, you know, good flyable gear. Um, but uh, I'm fortunate in, in the sense of having uh, some support uh, from businesses in that regard. Mm-hmm. And so, um, in the end, they don't cost me a whole lot except for my time. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, the total expense as far as the logistics of the actual expedition. Uh, so no paragliders, no vehicles, no support other than my friend doing the weather. Um, you know, I'm literally just buying peanut butter and noodles, which, you know, I don't know if people are buying peanut butter and noodles other than me, but that's probably some of the most economical things that you can find at the grocery store or in my case it's usually a gas station because as you know in Canada here sometimes you can't get to a grocery store but you know you've got stretches right. of 100 kilometers where there's nothing but a gas station so um yeah I probably spent uh over 52 days I probably spent about uh, maybe $200 $250 wow on on food um so once you've got the hard gear locked down um the actual expedition costs aren't too crazy uh, at least to feed yourself. So that's pretty good to know. Yeah, I know it's, it's, I mean, I'm, again, it's, it's about accessibility. So other than, you know, okay, my tent was a little bit expensive. My sleeping bag was a little bit expensive, mm-hmm. but you know, I, I use them again and again for all of my expeditions. And yeah, the, the cost of, of doing something like this is, is truly just one's time. So. Well, that's interesting. Okay. So we're getting close to our time here, but I, I, don't want to sign off without having a chance to quickly talk about uh, some of the philanthropy that you're doing with your your flying and uh, you know your projects like School of Dreams or uh, some of the work that you've done over in Africa. Totally, yeah, I, I uh, I'd love to talk about that. I um, had this dream. Uh, literally, I woke up from the dream um, back in 2011. Um, I was going through some serious adventure withdrawal. I had flown across Canada by powered paraglider uh, two years prior, made a film, a book about it, and was basically just reliving that uh, story again and again, um, doing presentations, and it wasn't really doing much for me. And I was going through a rough patch, uh, and I got this idea that I wanted to um, teach someone to fly that would not have the means to fly. Uh, otherwise, and to document that experience, to document that delight. And so, um, it, I ended up choosing a, 
a country where no one had ever flown a paraglider before, not a tourist, not a local. And that was a country in Malawi. I'd never been to Africa before. Um, so I was super excited. And I went there and I just started attracting attention by flying these kites and teaching kids how to build kites from just garbage that I'd find, find around. And I met this one young boy who had a dream to fly. And we did this deal where I would um, teach him to fly if he would take me around his country. So we traveled around his country on bicycles and I taught him to manage the paraglider and uh, we were making a film at the same time and towards the end of the film he had the most epic experience of, of his life and probably I would say maybe my life too was witnessing um, the experience of him finally getting to live his dream and, and, and to become his country's first paraglider pilot. So this was an incredibly moving thing and um, the film uh, was very popular in the world and it gave me uh, enough in the way of proceeds to be able to go back there. Now I've been back probably four more times and to establish a, a volunteer based paragliding uh, school there where people can be connected with quality instruction and uh, equipment to be able to realize their dream of paragliding. And, um, what we realized was the real impact of this thing was that kids, like it was the kids that were getting inspired, the young ones. And um, in Malawi, there's a major issue where, you know, probably, I, think, I, I don't have the exact numbers in front of me, but something's, you know, astonishing, like 80% of kids aren't, aren't getting past grade two. So um, we realized that the real impact that paragliding can have in Malawi isn't just people being able to paraglide in Malawi, that we can only do so much of that. But, when these paragliders land and they're swarmed by 100 or 200 kids that are all the kids that are not in school on that day, the paragliders talk to the kids about the importance of staying in school. And they explain to them that opportunities like what they're experiencing are only available to them because they did, you know, tough it out through grade school and through high school. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and, and, and the impact is, is is impressive because now you know the the schools in the regions that we're flying are flooded you know like they they would need to actually expand the schools uh and increase the staff in order to be able to accommodate the enthusiasm right now um in those regions and um also we've been able to expand to provide other opportunities for those kids and for their parents nonetheless by creating jobs where they're uh, repurposing old paragliders, turning them into these kind of nice fashiony bags that, that we sell to support the school. And then we've got the solar powered internet center where the kids are able to go. If they're going to school, they're able to go to the internet center after school. They're in charge of charging the batteries and, and charging up the iPads. They can get on Facebook and Wikipedia, which is awesome for them. They love that. Wow. And, cool. um, these are kids, by the way, that don't have books, right? So mm -hmm. to be able to get on Wikipedia all of a sudden is like, what? <laughs> you know, and just recently we added a program where uh, kids that are really trying to get into high school, um, we're setting them up with, um, which is kind of like the equivalent of getting your um you know, like uh, getting a degree there, it's, 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 it's not a, it's, it's, you know, it's, an, it's a big deal to go to high school in Malawi, mm -hmm. uh, just statistically speaking, uh, setting them up with solar, solar energy and lights so that they can study, um, once the sun goes down. Cause most of the kids there, they're doing chores and stuff, helping around the house until well beyond dark. So, right. um, they're not able to, to perform as well in school because they've got these hours before they go to sleep, but they've got no light to study with. So, um, 
that's what's going on. That's the School of Dreams. Well, the website sounds, is theschooldreams.org. And yeah. Yeah, I was just going to say people are invited to to check it out and volunteer if they want. They don't have to be pilots to participate. There's lots of opportunities at the School of Dreams. Sure. What's the what's the best place for them to find it on your website? Uh, yeah, just hit up this uh, the, for that specifically. It's theschooldreams.org. Um, that is the hub for that you know philanthropy pro- project and lots of inspiring content. Right. If someone wants to go to to Africa maybe for the first time and get get involved and stuff like that, so. Um, and then uh, people want to learn more mm-hmm. about you, they can go to your website, benjaminjordan.com. That's right. And uh, the, the website for the the new exciting film, which I've been slaving over day and night all winter, um, will be theendlesschain.com. And that's going to be up by the time that this podcast airs. So Cool. Are you gonna, yeah, so much. Are you going to uh, send that out uh, to Film Fest? Or are you just launching it live on your site? Or how are you going to roll that out? Um, how it's going to look is there's going to be a uh, sort of a call it a six month sponsorship period, uh, kind of an, a crowdfunding um, period before it be, uh, gets dropped uh, publicly, where it's only in film festivals mm-hmm. um, as a, just a requirement of a lot of film festivals. Uh, people yeah. who want to become sponsors, they can they'll be able to get the full film plus a bunch of other perks like their name at the end and the credits, and they'll get special a special sponsorship preview of the film that will not be made public. Um, and then, um, yeah, and then once it's done its film festival run, uh, probably by the fall, um, I'll be doing a Canada and U.S. tour of the film, and people will be able to also vote um, to have it come to their city um, on that website, on theendlesschain.com. And so if people, if I get enough votes for, let's say, Calgary or whatever, or Toronto or, you know, where um i will set up the screening there and contact everyone and let them know that it's time we're gonna do it we're gonna do a talk and a screening so wow i'm getting jacked just talking about it <laughs> that's great yeah it's uh it's yeah. always exciting rolling uh, these new projects out when you're it's just uh, a labor of love and you've been invested in this for geez over two years by the sounds of things so yeah uh that's thrilling well hey uh we're we're out of time so congratulations uh final question for you though mm-hmm. um What's uh, what's a mantra that you uh, use? Wow, um, fear um, fear exists only to you know lead you to love. It would be probably at the core of all of my thinking. Fear is the is the light uh, to love. Interesting. I think we get a lot deeper on that uh, at another time, but uh, we'll, we'll sign off with that. So, hey, this has been uh, really enlightening for me. I, I've learned a lot. It's been a fun conversation and uh, great to get to know you and, and your expedition. It's, uh, it's impressive, uh, fascinating, and the, the patience to sit on top of these mountaintops, um, you know, it's next level for me. So uh, thanks again for, for joining us, uh, Ben. And um, yeah, best of luck with the rollout of the film and uh, Film Fest and, you know, your continued flying. When are you getting back in the air next? Oh, uh, soon. As soon as I'm done with this editing. Nice. Spring so, has sprung yeah. um, here. And uh, yeah, I'm excited to get my butt up the next mountain and, and back into the sky. Well, that's awesome. So, hey. Thank you very much for uh, for joining us with the Adventure Science Podcast. Uh, really, uh, really a fun um, chat here. So to everybody who's uh, listening on the web, well, if you want to learn more about Benjamin Jordan, you can check him out at uh, benjaminjordan.com. Um, 
his uh, school project, schoolofdreams.org, is uh, the philanthropic project that he's doing in Malawi. And if you want to learn more about Adventure Science, we're at adventurescience.com. So thanks again, everyone, for listening to the podcast. I would like to thank our sponsors, Merrill, Farm to Feet, Stoked Oats. And tune in uh, for the next one. We've got a a long list of great people coming down the pipe here. So thanks again, Benjamin, and all the best for uh, your future projects. Thank you so much, Simon. Thank you.